the first few words from the third chapter in the book of Colossians that we've been rehearsing already today make a staggering claim on our lives. This is the claim. So, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated, which is the Bible's way of saying you have been raised with Christ. So look higher, look farther, look deeper, look more, seek the things that are above. When Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them, you can read about this in the Gospel of Luke, went to the tomb on that pre-dawn Sunday with their hearts heavy and lament in their spirit. They saw the tomb was empty and an angel started shouting, he is not here but has been raised. And carrying with that tune was the announcement, you've been raised too, so look higher, look farther, look deeper, look more, seek the things that are above. When Peter stooped down to look into that same tomb and saw the linen cloth lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head rolled up and placed by itself, he went home amazed. And part of what was so amazing is not just that the dead, cold corpse of a man was now up, alive, and well, but rather that you've been raised too. So look higher, look deeper, look farther, look more. Seek the things that are above. When Cleopas and his wife were walking along that Emmaus road, from Jerusalem and an unrecognizable stranger stands among them and strolls with them, clearly unaware of the cultural moment, realities of the moment, but rather opening the scriptures to them. And when he takes his seat at the table and breaks the bread for them, then their eyes are opened and they recognize them. And part of what they recognize is not just their nephew, Jesus, but rather the grand Christian claim, you've been raised with Christ. So look farther, look higher, look deeper, look more. Seek the things that are above. This is the fourth Sunday in the season of Eastertide, and we are still celebrating, so don't stop me now, the stunning implications of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection on our lives. And among the implications is that you and I and all of us together will look higher, Look farther, look deeper, look more. We'll seek the things above. So listen with me to one of the ways the things above can be described. The revelation of Jesus Christ that God made known to his servants He made it known by sending an angel to his servant John who testified to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and keep what is written in it. The time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, Grace and peace to you from him who was and who is and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who set us free from our sin by his blood and made us to be a kingdom and priest serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he's coming in the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And 
On his account, every tribe of the earth will wail, so it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, who share with you in the persecution and the kingdom and the patient endurance, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I heard a loud voice like a trumpet behind me say, write down what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Sardis, to Thyatira, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, with a long robe and a golden sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white as wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face shone like the sun at full force. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead." He reached out his right hand and touched me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but see, now I am alive, and I live forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and to Hades. Write what you see, what is and to what, what is to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You've tested those who claim to be apostles and are not and have found them to be false. I know that you're bearing patiently, bearing up for the sake of my name and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember then from what you have fallen. Repent And return to the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this is to your credit. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone with an ear hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To those who conquer, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's Revelation chapter 1 and the first seven verses of chapter 2. John, St. John, the pastor John, the pastor of the seven churches out in Asia, had been exiled to the island prison called Patmos. Think Alcatraz without the three daily meals. 
exiled to the prison island called Patmos because he believed the Bible was trustworthy and he announced the lordship of the risen Christ, which was a tremendous threat to Roman rule and Greek culture. So they sent the silly pastor away into silence, into despairing. But John wasn't alone. John caught a vision. John saw something else. And the first thing amidst the suffering and the pain and the despairing that John saw was Jesus. And right behind Jesus stands the church. And Jesus saying to the church, love, love, love. The pressure is mounting for Pastor John. The circumstances are tense for St. John. And John first sees Jesus, and right behind Jesus is the church, and Jesus is saying to the church, love, love. I'm not going to even attempt to translate first century Roman persecution and exile life on the prison island of Patmos to the circumstances of our 21st century reality, but I will dare suggest that when pain is real and pressure is high and the world is swirling in chaos and brokenness and another quarantine and another shooting and another act of racial injustice that we, a whole bunch of us were hoping wasn't true but keeps showing up as true, the invitation is to see Jesus And right behind Jesus, the church, and Jesus saying to the church, love. Love. Amidst the swirling realities of the world, John sees Jesus. Jesus is the animating center of the whole universe. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He's the cornerstone. He's the living one. He's the the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus is the animating center of the whole universe. Jesus was there with the Father and the Spirit before pre-creation chaos, announcing life into existence and announces life still. Jesus is the one on the mind of the living God after the fall in Genesis 3 when God curses the serpent and said, my boy will strike your head. Jesus is on his mind. Jesus is on God's mind when he covenanted with Abram saying, through you I'll bless all the nations of the earth. Jesus is the one who sends the spirit at Pentecost to gather the church and awakens the church still. Jesus is the one who will come again to make all things new and to make all things right. Jesus is the animation center of all that is and was and ever will be. And John's given a vision. Amidst the suffering and the pain and the pressure, John sees Jesus. After this, I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, with a long robe and a golden sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face shone like the sun at full force. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And if you want to fall down now, I'd understand. The first thing John sees is Jesus. He's the animating center of the universe. And the implications of his life, death, and resurrection on our lives have no limits. They know no end. There is no boundary to what the risen Christ can ask, expect, and call for from us. But our action is not the center. 
It's the consequence. We don't seek justice. We seek Jesus, who calls us to do justice. We don't seek mercy. We seek Jesus, who invites us to be merciful. We don't seek forgiveness. We seek Jesus, who embraces us in the tenderness of of his grace and invites us to do the same. We don't seek a happy, healthy marriage. We seek Jesus, who calls us to submit to one another. We don't even seek salvation. We seek Jesus and realize our salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. Jesus is the animating center of the whole universe, and our, the implications of his life on our lives know no limits, but our action is not the center, it's the consequence. And when you take the consequence and place it in the center, you find yourself trapped by your own insufficiencies and inabilities. Jesus is the center. Seek Christ. Uh, reminds me of some words by John Calvin in the Institutes of the Christian Religion. We see that our whole salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. We should therefore take care not to derive the least portion of it from anywhere else. Since rich store of every kind of good abounds in him, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. Seek, look deeper, look higher, look farther, look more. Seek the things that are above and the first thing you'll see. It's Jesus Christ. And right behind Jesus stands the church. That's the movement of Revelation chapter 1 into Revelation chapter 2. John's given the stunning vision of Jesus. And then, right behind Jesus, the church. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks Among the seven golden lampstands, coded language, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Try that on for size. There's an angel of the church. The guide, protector, spirit, ethos, culture of the church. There's an angel of the church. And the golden lampstands themselves are the churches. And Jesus, follow me now, walks among the golden lampstands. Jesus Christ, the risen one himself, walks among the church. Where's the church? Right behind Jesus. When when we gather on the corner of 9th and College or 6th and Lincoln or in Saugatuck, Zeeland, New York, Wisconsin, Idaho, Florida, Nigeria, when we gather as a community, to lift our voices in praise to the risen one, Jesus Christ is among us. The gathering of the church is not a social club to keep some in and others out. It's not even an activist group to get things done. It's an engagement with the living God. And you might enjoy fellowship and you might go do things, but don't show up here expecting that to be the end. Rather, Engage the living Christ who walks among the golden lampstands, but not just when we gather. Where's the church? Right beside, right behind Jesus, wherever you are most of the time. That's where the church is. Out in the, we stand right behind Jesus out in the world. So on Tuesday of this past week, we did a fun little exercise. I thought it was fun anyway. Uh, our executive pastor, Christophe led our staff team in imagining 
where you all are most of the time. We put them all up on the whiteboard, all of these interesting things we imagined you'd be doing throughout your week. Where's the church? The church stands right behind Jesus at Jefferson Elementary School in a third grade classroom of developmentally struggling young ones through the form of a 70-year-old retired substitute teacher on his knees tying shoes for that little guy to get out to recess. Where's the church? Right behind Jesus out in the world. Where's the church? In the therapist's office, listening gently, holding space for the adolescent anxiety and the marriage struggle and the middle-aged disappointment. Where's the church? Right behind Jesus, out in the world. Where's the church? In the crowded grocery store, in the, the backed-up self-checkout lane where the elderly woman can't quite get the machine to work, waiting patiently, honoring her dignity and offering Help in any way that's appropriate. Where's the church? Right behind Jesus, out in the world. Where's the church? At the Edward Jones office or the Ronald Blue office or the bank or whatever investment group you're a part of, guiding people, stewarding their resources for the common good and the flourishing of the kingdom. The church is right behind Jesus, out in the world. Where's the church? Carrying a big old couch from the Holland Rescue Mission to a place here in town for someone who needed it. Right behind Jesus, out in the world. That's where the church is. Where you go, Jesus goes. He walks among the golden lampstands to animate your life. He's the animating center of the universe, animating your life. So see more, see different, see farther, see deeper, seek the things that are above. With the world swirling in chaos, John sees Jesus first and right behind Jesus, the church. Isn't that where we're supposed to be? Right behind Jesus, out in the world? That's why we're called Christians, by the way. And Jesus says to the church, love, love. There's a little carefrontation going on here with the church in Ephesus. And like every good carefrontation, John starts with blessing. I know your works. Your toil and your patient endurance. Good job, team. Keep it up. You're working hard. I know you cannot tolerate evildoers, and you've tested those who claim to be apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. Good work. Doctrinal purity. We're all for it. I know you're bearing patiently, bearing up for the sake of my name, and you've not grown weary. It's hard to hammer out a faithful existence in Ephesus. The carefrontation turns to confrontation. Jesus says, I have this against you. You've abandoned your first love. Remember then from what you have fallen. Repent and return to the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I'll take you away. I'll take your life away. I'll remove the church from its existence in your life if you won't love. Doctrinal purity, keep it up. Work hard, it's great. Hammer out a faithful existence in a difficult circumstance, of course. But if those things aren't animated by love, it's all ineffective. It's all unhelpful. It's not the gospel. We live in this tense cultural moment 
And there are actually forces, I'm talking about like spiritual forces, pushing you into corners of argument and fight and division. And every time you enter into the argument and the fight and the the division, you've been co-opted by a cultural force. Which isn't to say you can't have conviction. It isn't to say you can't have opinion. It isn't to say you can't disagree. But if those things aren't held by love, it's not the gospel. They'll know you're Christians because you're right, because you work harder, because you do more, because you think you're better. It's not the gospel. They'll know you're my disciples if you love Uh, Eugene Peterson, in a book titled The Hallelujah Banquet, I'm going to be reading from it a lot over the next few months, so you might want to buy it. Our accomplishments are awesome. What do you want to be? Athlete, scientist, artist, inventor? What's the best thing you can do with your life? With all the possibilities open and the vast array of examples, you'd think that there would be a great deal of argument and confusion about what's best. In fact, there's a surprising consensus. I think we can say overwhelmingly that the best thing we do is love. When when we're living at our best, with all our energies focused, all our abilities alert and involved, doing what we were created to do, we love. No matter what else we do, no matter if we come home with an Olympic gold or make a million dollars or pioneer the exploration of space or move the world with some artistic performance or discover the cure to cancer, if we do not love, it's not satisfactory. No matter if we are responsible and work hard and do our jobs well and stay out of trouble and are respected, if we do not love, then somehow we've failed. If we live but don't love, we miss it. If we live but don't love, we miss it. You've abandoned your first love. Remember then from what you have fallen. Repent and return to the works you did at first or I'll come to you and I'll remove your lampstands from its place unless you repent. Now, what's super interesting about that particular call, Ephesus, that received the letter, was the epicenter of love. People from all over the world came to Ephesus to celebrate love. That's where the Greek goddess Artemis was located. The love goddess, the fertility goddess, and people from all over the world showed up to celebrate love. But their love turned to lust. Their love turned to self-satisfaction. Their love turned into objectification. Jesus, though, doesn't shy away from the language love, but calls us to love differently. Not love as lust, not love as objectification, not love to use, to satisfy, to get, to accumulate, but rather love to give, to serve, to offer, to extend. Love differently is the call. And how does it go somewhere else in the Bible? Love is Patient, in short supply in our cultural moment. Love is kind. Be kind. Love is not envious when your coworker gets the promotion. It is not arrogant when you get the promotion. It doesn't boast when you accomplish. It isn't rude. There's so much rude in the world. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. Love 
hopes all things, love believes all things, love endures all things, love never ends. Love differently. With the pressures mounting and the world swirling and chaos happening, John sees Jesus. And right behind Jesus, the church. And Jesus saying to the church, love, love, love differently. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.